Welcome to another episode of When Opportunity Knocks, and I'm your host, Nancy O'Keefe, and we're here to talk about how we improve our businesses and increase our value in the marketplace. And boy, people are just really one of the biggest assets and biggest problems that we have in our businesses, and I'm very happy to have with us today a human resources consultant who's an expert in that area. Her name is Megan Taylor, and not only is she an HR consultant, acting as an advisor to small and medium-sized businesses, but she's also an experienced attorney, and we are going to talk with her about a number of issues around hiring and having staff. So, Megan, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thanks, Nancy. Thank you for having me. So glad to have you here. I know that, you know, most of the organizations that I work with have some issues around people. People are your greatest asset, but they're also uh, an area where it takes a lot of expertise and time to make sure you have happy employees and you're in compliance and all of those other good legal things. So just from a human resources um, consultant perspective, what are the top mistakes that you see small business owners make in the area of human resources? Um, I think, Nancy, one of the biggest problems is that people don't get organized and compliant and maybe think about things early enough. So when they start out and maybe only have, you know, a small number of uh, employees, a couple, that's really the time to put a lot of processes and procedures in place because you do want to pay attention to these issues and make sure you're doing the right thing, uh, not only from a compliance standpoint, but also from being uh, a good employer that has as robust a set of benefits, perhaps, as you can afford to retain people. And so, you know, you go about your business and you're focusing on your whatever your core competency is, and then suddenly you turn around to have 10, 15, maybe more employees, and no one knows what the vacation policy is or no one has been paying t- uh, attention to compliance issues. So for me, I think if people try to get organized and compliant and deal with some of these issues, as early as possible, it can prevent a lot of uh, problems down the road where, you know, suddenly they find out that they haven't been compliant in a particular area and it causes problems for them, whether it's, you know, from a payroll standpoint or benefits or performance and they're not handling uh, onboarding or performance or even terminations correctly. So it can come back to be a problem if you're not thinking about things early enough. And you mentioned something that I think is key, and that's retaining good employees on the benefit side of the house. It's um, pretty competitive out there to, to, you know, attract and then keep good people. So do you have any? I mean, yeah, it's key. uh, I mean, my recommendation to clients is to try to be an employer of choice in their area, whatever it may be, and regardless of their size, even if they're very small. If you are a good employer that treats your employees um, properly, we know, within budgetary constraints and does the best that they can in terms of providing good benefits, good feedback, um, I think you tend to find that you will retain those people. I mean, you've worked hard to locate and train up these individuals. So you want to make sure that you're keeping the good people. um, And similarly, perhaps, Uh, working with people that aren't performing as well to either get them up to speed or exit them in a respectful way. But you want to be the employer that people say, I really like working for my company. Maybe they don't give me the, you know, most luxurious benefits suite because they can't afford it, but they think of things that are um, cost-effective to help me feel valued, and they also give me great feedback when I do a good job. So I think those things can be uh, implemented by an employer of any size and really any budget to help keep those people that they have worked hard to find and train up and they want to keep because they add value to their company. Yeah, you know, appreciation is really key. I read a study put out by Gallup that said there were roughly 70% of the American workforce that are really not happy doing what they're doing. They're not engaged with their employment. And it really didn't make any difference whether um, they were in, you know, a college-educated environment or not, whether they were male or female. Age group had little to do with it. So appreciating your employees is key because that is 
what people are looking for. They're not going to get in their car and drive some number of miles in traffic and leave their home and their children or what have you. Uh, if they don't feel appreciated, they're going to move on. Right. And I think uh, an integral part of that is the dreaded performance review. I mean, everybody seems to moan and groan about doing appraisals or evaluations. To me, there should be a really simple, frequent check-in. doesn't have to be complicated with, you know, scores and 360 feedback if that doesn't work for you. But it's really important, I think, for employers of any size to have some sort of simple performance review, and that does two things. One, it helps you to your point, give positive feedback to those employees that you do think are doing a good job. They don't automatically know that, um, and they like to hear that. And it also sets you up if you do have an employee that's not performing, if they have measurable goals that you are discussing with them regularly and they're not improving their performance and you're telling them that they're not doing what they need to do and that maybe if they don't pull their socks up, they're going to find themselves in the departure lounge, uh, that's important because you are creating that paper trail. And then also, it's not a surprise. If they can't do the work or won't do the work and you do have to let them go, it shouldn't be a surprise. They may not agree with your decision, but they see it coming. And, and often they move on on their own and they go find another job, which saves you, saves you um, costs from an unemployment standpoint. So I really think that a simple, effective performance review does not have to be complicated it just has to be done and done regularly, and there's a lot of benefit to the employer to do that. Should Is once a year enough, or should they be doing it more often than that? Oh, I think it should be, you know, depending on the industry and your job, I mean, it could be monthly. And it doesn't have to be called a performance review. It can be a check-in. You know, I'm going to sit down with my manager once a month and see where I am against my goals. I mean, part of it is just having your goals written down. You know, what is Megan supposed to do this month? Is she supposed to sell X number of widgets? Is she supposed to migrate us from one system to another? Whatever the case may be, there are three or four things that I'm probably supposed to be working on in addition to maybe my regular tasks. And having a monthly check-in with my manager to see where I am on those things I think is helpful. Maybe it's once a quarter, but I think once a year is way too long. You're not going to remember the details of the things that I did either positively or negatively 11 months ago and it just doesn't help, uh, I think, either motivate or um, improve behavior if I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm so glad to hear you say that because I think the annual review is really a waste of time because you don't remember and people don't tend to write things down. Um, so a good rule of thumb here is that when you do those check-ins, do write things down so that you have some notes you can pull together if it's time to give a raise or something like that. So. And also for that documentation. That's, that's true. Right. And the documentation is important. And bearing in mind the laws in your respective state on that issue in Massachusetts, if you uh, create a document that you want, that's a negative document that you're putting in your employee's personnel file, it has to say on the document, I am putting a copy of this in your personnel file. So the employer, excuse me, the employee is on notice that this is going in my file. So, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be a complicated performance process, but it just should be something that each employer can manage and do regularly and, and be compliant about it as well. Excellent. Now, I know one of the other areas that is tough for small business owners is the whole idea of having workplace policies and procedures. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that and what should be included? I think a handbook and the key uh, policies is really important for both the employer and the employee. It sets the roadmap. You know, what is the employer expecting from me? What can I expect from the, the company? And if it's all in one place and written down, again, it doesn't have to be giant, but it can be the key policies and points, and there are things you do need to uh, comply with federal and most likely state law. Um, once it's written down, everybody's on the same page, and that way, if I don't know what the uh, vacation policy is, I can be directed to my handbook and I can go there to see maybe some information about benefits so that a manager isn't put in the spot of, well, I don't really remember what the vacation policy is and maybe then I subsequently give somebody a different uh, benefit that I probably shouldn't. So if it's all in one place, it uh, gives a roadmap, I think, for both the employer and the employee about what's expected from each of them in the employment relationship. And again, 
depending on the state that you're in, you do have to have uh, written policies. Uh, in Massachusetts, you have to have a written harassment and discrimination policy if you have six or more employees. You have to have a written information security plan if you have personally identifying information about employees. Um, and there are other state-specific uh, policies that do have to be in writing. And so it's always good to have one place where you're putting all of that information so that you know where it is, the employees know where it is, and then you can update as needed. Mm. So I know that every state is different, obviously, and you do international work in addition to work in the U.S., but is it, you know, how, what are the key things and how can you keep yourself in compliance? What do you have to be really careful of regardless of what jurisdiction you're in in terms of being compliant? Well, there are some key areas, and they do vary widely from state to state. One area that you really do need to check on is pre-employment background checks. If I want to do a quarry or a criminal record check in Massachusetts, it's a different process than in another state. And also, some states don't allow pre-employment background checks, criminal record checks from the state um, in any event. So... That's different. Uh, wage and hour laws may be different. Um, harassment and discrimination policy requirements are going to be different. Uh, some states have specific information. And you can go to the, each state's website um, and find the various posters that are required. Everyone probably knows that there are federal posters that you need to post. But if you have several people in one state and one guy somewhere else, you need to be mindful of what are the workplace posters that are in that state. A lot of that you can get yourself online by, you know, searching for required employment posters for that particular jurisdiction. I also would recommend that people uh, uh, subscribe to a Department of Labor, the U.S. Department of Labor newsletters that will give you updates on federal wage and hour laws. Um, And it can be onerous. If you have multiple employees in different states, it's, it is it is difficult to try to keep up to speed on everything. But the important thing is to realize that those laws may be different and then seek out appropriate guidance if you feel like you, know, you don't want to go down that road of figuring out five or six states' worth of um, compliance issues. You want to make sure that you're attending to that in some way. Mm-hmm. Good advice. Well, we're coming up on a commercial break, and you mentioned uh, workplace harassment and discrimination, and I'd like to pick that up in the next segment and talk a little about that. So let's take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back with Megan Taylor. Are you a small business owner with a big vision? Does every day require too much of your personal involvement to take the next step? At Simple Small Business Solutions, we offer consulting and coaching to align your business reality with your vision for the future. Simple Small Business Solutions can help you put the pieces in place to get there. Clear your plate, reclaim your time, Get the freedom and flexibility you need to achieve your next success. Contact us at simplesmallbusinesssolutions.com. I'm looking for a certain kind of woman, and I think you know her. She's an entrepreneur that is highly connected, successful, significant in her own industry, and considered the go-to woman in her community. She's received so much from so many women in business, she's ready to give back to others on their journey, lifting as she climbs. Hi, this is Sandra Yancey, and I'm the founder and CEO of eWomen Network. I'm looking to connect with the woman I've just described who lives in your community so that we might have a conversation about how eWomen Network's proven success system can provide her a platform to elevate her success and ability to support women in business. Our international community of managing directors are influencing the speed of success for women in business around the world. If that sounds like something that you want to be part of or know someone we should talk with, send an email to managingdirector at eWomenNetwork.com. That's managingdirector at eWomenNetwork.com. And let's start the conversation. Welcome back. We're talking with Megan Taylor, who's an HR consultant and an attorney, and she's helping us understand some of the HR issues that we face as small business owners. Now, Megan, you mentioned workplace harassment and discrimination. Um, you know, I, I know there are some instances where people are not doing the right things in terms of, 
treatment and they don't even really have an awareness of it. Can you talk a little bit about what is considered workplace harassment and then we'll tackle discrimination next? Sure. Uh, In most states, there are laws that define what, uh, in their particular state, workplace um, harassment consists of, but largely it's two things. One is with something called quid pro quo harassment, which is something perhaps something for something, which is an employee must engage in um, some sort of harassing behavior or harassment in order to keep their job or be promoted. Um, when a lot of uh, women came back into the workforce in the 70s and 80s, some of these laws were put into place about sexual harassment, but there can be harassment on a number of protected classes um, that have gone into effect since then. But that would be, I, uh, as an employee, have to undergo some sort of harassing behavior in order to keep my job or get promoted or what have you. Uh, the other kind of harassment is a hostile work environment where it is a pervasive, ongoing, harassing uh, behavior that's offensive to a reasonable person and interferes with my ability to do my job. Um, so maybe I come in every day and there are offensive uh, materials left on my, um, you know, my workstation or I, things are said to me on an ongoing basis that are harassing and offensive. And even though you know, one in particular instance may not be a quid pro quo type of harassment, the overall magnitude of that creates a hostile work environment. And an employer is responsible uh, from a liability standpoint if either type of harassment uh, happens in the workplace. And as I say, it varies from state to state as to what the breadth of the protected classes are, but they are, um, there, are, there are several protections beyond what people might be aware of, which are normally you know, gender, age, pregnancy, um, national origin, religion, uh, in Massachusetts and other states now, there are protections that are extended to gender identity for transgendered individuals. And there's a federal law on, on genetic information that protects an employee from harassment uh, based on genetic information. That would be information that would reveal whether I have a propensity for some sort of uh, illness or condition that might interfere with my ability to do my job. So if I come into work, and even if someone through HIPAA does not necessarily get that information from my insurance company or my medical records, if I come into the workplace and talk about how I found out that I have a family history of breast cancer, for example, my employer can't say, oh, Megan might develop breast cancer down the road and she's going to cost me a lot of money. She's going to be out a lot of treatment and it's going to be expensive. It might affect my insurance rate. So I'm just going to terminate her now. So an employer cannot take an adverse uh, employment action based on my genetic information. So wow. there are lots of protections now in the workplace that people need to be mindful of, um, both from an employer standpoint and also the employees need to understand what is appropriate behavior and what can I say and not say. So that's where I think training is important in any environment. Um, and depending on the state, it might not be a legal requirement that you actually have training. The state might require you to have a poster or a policy but it's best practices to also have training so that everybody, the employer, the employees, understand what they should and should not do um, because not only would the company potentially be held liable, but uh, managers need to understand that they may, depending on the facts, have individual liability uh, in addition to um, holding the company responsible. So I think it's very important that employers think about these issues as as much as they may not want to. Mm. And we're we're hearing a lot right now, especially during this presidential campaign that we're all experiencing about uh, wage discrimination and uh, gender discrimination in terms of uh, ability to get the right positions and to be paid fairly and so on. Uh, what can you say about discrimination in terms of the small business owner beyond the obvious? What do they need to be watching themselves for? Well, I think... It's, it's, it's maybe easier in some sense when you have a larger organization where people are tracking pay and maybe, well, I, I don't know if it's easier actually, but for the smaller employer, I think what is difficult is if they have employees that are longstanding uh, employees and they know them well and they like them and they're almost like family and then they start treating them differently 
from someone else who comes who's new on board. And I often see this in the maternity leave area where, uh, depending on the state you're in, most likely you're not required to have paid leave, but you may be required to provide unpaid leave for a particular mm-hmm. period of time. Um, and so employers might have somebody that's worked for them for a long time. They think they're great. They're almost like family. They um, ask for maternity leave, and then they decide, well, I know this person so well, and I want her to come back. I'm going to pay some maternity leave or give her some more generous maternity benefits than I'm required to. And then another person comes along some period of time later who they don't know as well, and they just want to give them their, you know, eight weeks of unpaid leave. So employers have to be mindful of not inadvertently getting into a situation where they're discriminating against perhaps in this case two female employees and giving them different benefits. Um, and they need to just also pay attention to, um, you know, issues around equal pay, of course, and other, just other benefits and making sure that they're giving everybody the, the same treatment based on role, length of um, experience or what other issues rather than just a member of a protected class or not. So it's really about uh, maintaining consistency then. Right, right. And, you know, and the then doc- deals, doc- the special arrangements, even though the employee may think they're being very generous, it could potentially cause um, problems for treatment of other people, other employees. And then having good documentation around those policies so that you can prove everyone was treated in the same manner. Absolutely. Right? Do you recommend that small business owners go as far as having salary ranges for positions uh, where they may only have one or two people fulfilling that position? I mean, I don't think that hurts. Um, you know, obviously the small should maintain flexibility uh, in terms of their their staff just because they're so small and they may need more flexibility. But I think thinking about things and writing it down and sort of having perhaps a uh, a band that you want to keep people in um, is helpful because, again, you don't want to be even inadvertently treating people differently. Um, and so just thinking about this is a huge step in the right direction, I think. Mm. And I know you do some of this workplace harassment and discrimination training. Um, for the growing organization who starts out with a handful of employees and over time grows to the point where they might need to have somebody in a supervisory or a management position, what would you suggest um, they provide in the way of training for those new supervisors and managers? Well, I recommend two uh, levels of training. One is everyone in the company, regardless of their role, gets trained on what harassment is, what discrimination is, about the company's legal obligation to investigate a claim, what their claim process is, um, and how they would handle an investigation. And then I recommend a sec- second separate managerial training to cover off specifically two things. One is, again, reminding managers that they, if they are the bad actor, if they're the one that's committing the unlawful behavior, they may have personal exposure and liability and potentially ever went to a lawsuit, be named as a party and have their own um, associated exposure and defense costs. Um, also, it's important to let them know that if someone comes to them and starts talking about the situation, you know, often people don't walk in and say, I think I'm being sexually harassed or I think I'm being discriminated against. The employee might just come in with a problem and say, I feel uncomfortable around this person or this happened and it doesn't feel right. Uh, and then the dreaded words, I've gotten this off my chest and I don't want you to do anything about it. Every mm-hmm. manager needs to understand that that may all be be really describing some unlawful uh, workplace behavior, and they may not have put the label on it of harassment or discrimination, but it might rise to that level. So they have to understand that since the company has a legal obliga- obligation to investigate a claim, they need to have some radar up about what am I listening to and not just drop it, and certainly not necessarily without consulting, you know, a consultant or an attorney, let that drop if the employee walks out of the room. Because once you are put on notice of a claim, you have a legal obligation as an employee to investigate it. So if someone comes into me as a manager today and says, 
this behavior has been going on and I feel uncomfortable, please don't do anything about it, and I don't, and it is harassment, and it continues for another, you know, period of time, six months, and that person then leaves and files a complaint, they will say, I went and I talked to Megan on this day, and I told her all about this, and they did nothing. Right, so right. That, gives you an opportunity to mitigate your damages. So managers absolutely need to understand their own personal responsibility, one thing, and secondly, how they address and handle a situation when an employee comes to them with an issue such as this because it is a, it is a minefield and they want to make sure they're not, you know, again, inadvertently letting something go that should be addressed in the moment. So if the employee says, I don't want to do anything about it, that's almost a big red flag. <laughs> exactly. Now, you ha- we'd have to figure out how we handle that. I mean, maybe they truly don't want you to do anything about it, but maybe that requires a, a real uh, in-depth conversation with the uh, employee, really getting to the bottom of it. And if it's unlawful behavior, it's unlawful behavior. Even if the employee doesn't want you to do anything about it, you still may need to. So what what would you do then in a case of, let's say that there's uh, some sort of sexual harassment going on, the person comes in, they get it off their chest, and they say, I don't really want to do anything about it. What would the small business owner's next step be um, to protect themselves and to mitigate the situation? Well, I think at that point, there has to be a serious evaluation about whether or not this is perhaps a claim. If it's a claim... Uh, even if the person doesn't want you to investigate it, it may be that you do need to have it investigated. Um, if a company has an HR director or someone on site that um, has experience in conducting uh, an investigation, they can use that person, or they may want to go out to an outside consultant, which one of the one things that I do is do that kind of outside investigations, but go to someone who has more experience in this area to determine what's the appropriate step. I mean, to be honest, so many of these situations are not as clear-cut in many, many ways, and there are lots of issues, lots of things to look at and investigate. And so even if there is a clear um, unlawful behavior, there are all kinds of issues involved in these situations. And so my recommendation is for someone to get some outside advice from a lawyer or a consultant or what have you and not just let it drop uh, because it might come back uh, down the road and be a real problem. Yeah, that sounds like great advice. Um, Well, we're coming up on another commercial break, so let's uh, break here. And when we come back, um, you mentioned termination, and I know that's a difficult subject uh, for everybody. Let's talk a little bit about um, documenting in getting ready for termination and, and when to do what. So we'll be right back. Are you tired of playing small in business or in your career? What could you accomplish if you were seen, heard, and given the opportunity? If you want more influence, more impact, and more income, join us at Women's Leadership U. That's the letter U. We are a mastermind program dedicated to preparing women for leadership roles. Learn the skills that employers are looking for and business owners need. Gain the confidence and know how to move your ideas into action. To learn more, visit us at womensleadershipu.com with a capital U. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. One of my mottos for business owners is, you can't do it alone. Whether you're in the startup stage of your business or you're scaling, you can't grow without relationships to provide support, wisdom, and new customers. eWomen Network is your home to connect with other women entrepreneurs who have been where you are or are experiencing the same challenges. We have chapters across the U.S. and Canada that have monthly events featuring our trademarked process called Accelerated Networking to ensure you get the contacts, resources, and leads you need to grow your business. And once you become a member, you get many benefits, including two one-on-one coaching sessions, unlimited access to our membership database, your own personal profile page, and discounts on products and services with our business partners, such as UPS and American Express Open. Join the eWomen Network community and let us help you live your dream. For details, visit eWomenNetwork.com. And we're back talking about human resources issues for small business owners with Megan Taylor. So, Megan, you mentioned termination, and that's a tricky topic, and we hope as business owners we never have to do that. But in the event that we have an employee um, 
what's the process? I know it's always advantageous to try and give them um, a way to get back on track. And then if, if they don't go from there. So what would you recommend that we put in place as small business owners if we have somebody that's just not performing? Well, if it's a situation where um, it just the person is, has, is not able to get to where they need to be performance-wise, and hopefully you have that paper trail and you have those discussions, but it gets to that point, I think it's important to sit down and have a conversation with the person and say, look, you know, we've tried to work this out. It doesn't seem like it's a good fit. We've had conversations previously about your performance and we need to move on. And there are lots of things to consider when you make that final decision. Um, sometimes it happens, it does happen suddenly where maybe the straw that broke the camel's back has happened today and you just want to exit me from the company. You need to be aware of wage and hour laws that may dictate what happens with my final pay. Some states require that if you fire me today, you have to pay me by a hard check all wages that are due as of that date, as well as any accrued vacation. So situation, you're handing me my hat today, you can't say, oh, and your final pay will be coming in the direct deposit next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, one thing to be mindful of that in terms of final wages is commissions, because earned commissions are considered wages. So if I am entitled to commissions, you uh, will probably have to pay me as well any earned commission on that day that you pay me my final pay. Uh, commissions can be a real difficult area for employers. Uh, you should have a written sales commission plan in place that really defines when the employee earns commission so that if you do have to exit someone, it's really clear what I'm going to be entitled to upon departure. Um, usually there are uh, unemployment documents depending on the state that you need to give the person that notifies them how they would access whether online or if they have to go in person to um, make an unemployment claim. If they have benefits with you, you're going to want to give them COBRA notice, and there are um, federal deadlines about when you need to give that information and when they have to um, reply um, so that they can continue under COBRA on your medical uh, and or dental plan. Um, incidentally, you're entitled to charge them 102% of the total monthly premium on COBRA if you choose to. Uh, and if you are having a reduction in force, which is considered two or more people, you're laying off a group of people. If you are offering severance packages to some of those individuals or the departing people, there are federal laws that you have to comply with in order to have a, a, re- a release that is considered valid for paying of severance. Uh, so there are a number of things to consider depending on what the particular circumstances are of the termination. So you really have to plan for it so you can have the uh, appropriate payment ready when you're going to pull the trigger. Sure. I mean, you know, again, if it's a quick thing that suddenly, as I say, something has finally just, made the decision for you and you want to let them go that day, often what, I, what my clients do is they get the um, tax, the appropriate tax deduction and accrued vacation information from their payroll company. They create a manual check, so they have a check ready to just hand to that person with, again, wages, accrued vacation, and commissions to the extent that's applicable. And then they sort it out with the payroll company later. But, yes, you really should make sure that you're complying with your state wage and hour laws if you fire somebody uh, on the spot. Now, what do you do um, in terms of telling the rest of the employees that are left? What's what's the best policy there? I think you want to be careful of confidentiality issues. You clearly don't want to be potentially defaming someone. You want to, I think, be as brief and sort of factual as you can. I mean, I think we all know that in most small companies in particular, people tend to know who's performing and who's not performing. So I don't think mm-hmm. you need to go into graphic detail because everyone knows probably that so-and-so is chronically late or they're falling short of where they need to be. I think it's just preferable to say so-and-so has moved on. Um, their, their work is going to be taken over by you know, the other employee or whoever. 
and just keep it simple and uh, try to keep it as cordial as possible. You don't want to be potentially saying negative things about uh, an employee to others who are left behind. Right, right. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the beginning of the process. Um, I just helped a client uh, bring someone on board. And, um, you know, I know that the offer letter is a critical piece. Can you describe what makes up a good and sound offer letter? Sure. Well, unlike some of my European clients who are used to employment contracts with everybody from, you know, an entry-level person up to the president of the company, uh, here in the U.S. there's at-will employment, which means that an employer can terminate an employee for any or no reason, as long as it's not an unlawful reason. And similarly, the employee can quit without giving any kind of notice. So it's important in the offer letter that you spell out the key terms of the employment relationship, such as, you know, what's my start date, what's my title, who am I going to report to, um, what's my wage, how often am I being paid, am I entitled to benefits? You don't necessarily need to go into a lot of detail about the benefits, but you would want to say, you know, as a full-time employee, you'll be entitled to participate in our benefit plan um, that we will give you more information about later. You would also talk about whether someone is exempt or non-exempt, meaning whether or not they've classified as an employee that's entitled to overtime under federal law. Overtime, as everyone may know, is a tough issue, and mm-hmm. there are updates, there are changes that are coming down in November to the unemployment, excuse me, the overtime laws that are going to make it a little, even more complicated. But I would address that in the offer letter. And I would also have an at-will employment statement that says, that even though we're just starting out, we want to make sure we both understand the arrangement and that this is an at-will employment relationship uh, without any finite period of time or notice requirements. Um, and, those, and then I would include, if appropriate, a non-disclosure, non-solicitation agreement if you feel that that's appropriate for this role because those are contracts. Uh, a non-disclosure agreement be valid has to have consideration. Uh, the employee has to get something in order to keep that contract enforceable. And here, the offer of employment is the consideration. So if I'm ah. starting uh, a new job and I have an NDA or a non-solicitation, non-compete, uh, the offer of employment is the consideration. So if later on you hire me and I didn't have any of those things in place and suddenly I've been promoted and now I'm you know, director of sales, and you decide, oh, wait, we really want Megan to have a non-compete agreement. If you now come to me with a non-compete, you have to give me something, some consideration for that uh, contract to be valid, whether it's perhaps as part of a promotion and I'm getting some additional pay or I'm getting additional vacation or stock options if you're that size, whatever. I need to have some sort of consideration for that contract to be valid. So certainly Mm -hmm. the offer letter should contain any kind of um, uh, contracts like that, non-compete, non-solicitation, NDA. And I would also address whether or not you're doing any kind of pre-employment criminal record check so that they're aware that uh, my employment, my offer of employment is subject to me satisfactorily completing a criminal record check. Okay. Now, uh, you mentioned changes in the overtime laws. Is that a federal change? Yes. Yes, they haven't oh. changed in 30 years. So the uh, amount of the salary minimum is going up. There are some other changes. And also they are uh, activating a, um, a periodic review. I believe it's every three years. The salary amount will be uh, up for review. So it's quite complicated. And if anybody has any people that are uh, entitled to overtime, they should really take a good look at their overtime practices and and how they are classifying employees between now and next November. So what is the definition of an exempt employee, and does that vary from state to state? Uh, It's federal law, and there is a salary test that I just talked about and also a duties test. And so Mm -hmm. there are exceptions to the overtime law that make an in-person exempt. So that depending on their role and their duties and their background, there are a number of exceptions that would make me, as an attorney, for example, 
automatically exempt from the overtime laws. So if I'm working full-time as a lawyer, that role in and of itself is enough to make me not entitled to overtime. So there are a number of different duties um, that if you satisfy those, then you become exempt. But an Hmm. employer should actually take the time to go through their employees' roles and duties and, and actually adequately and thoroughly classify people properly because that's the minefield from employers. They think that just because someone's being paid a salary means that they're exempt, but it could be that I'm based on my duties, even though you're paying me a fixed salary, I am entitled to overtime. And Mm -hmm. that can be a a problem if you're not classifying people properly and you're not keeping proper time records, which is the critical piece. If I, I leave on bad terms and I go see the attorney general in my state and I say, you owe me overtime for the past three years, and this is the reason why, and if the employer doesn't have any records, it could be very problematic for the employer. It can be mm-hmm. subjected to trouble damages, fines. It's, it's not a good situation to be in. So it's one of those areas that people don't like to spend a lot of time thinking about, but they should. Right. Yeah, and it's a gotcha. I know of a couple of situations where um, I know of a class action suit, actually, uh, with one group of employees where they were uh, really supposed to be paid uh, hourly and get overtime, and they weren't. They were salaried, and um, it was pretty messy and pretty expensive yes. for the company. So, Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, um, what about the onboarding process? Now, when I have a new employee start, what are the key things that I need to be thinking about there? Well, there are some key things. As I say, if you're going to be doing criminal record checks, you know, that's probably on, you know, pre-employment process. Uh, then if everybody's passed muster and they're actually going to start, uh, you want to make sure that you're paying attention to when they're going to be eligible for medical benefits. If they are participating uh, uh, in a medical plan, there is a general COBRA notice that under federal law you're supposed to give to new starters. Even People think of COBRA as happening at the end of employment. But yeah. there are things like a general COBRA notice basically tells an employee, you are a member of this plan now, and this is what your rights are should your employment end. Uh, in Massachusetts, and this may vary in other states where there are exchanges, medical exchanges, uh, you are required to give an exchange notice that says, this is what our medical plan costs. It may be that you want to go to the exchange and see if you can get a more affordable option. Um, Obviously, the W-4, which is a uh, disclosure statement about what kinds of um, uh, you know, federal taxes they want taken out. Uh, there's the mm-hmm. I-9 form, which is the federal form to verify uh, my eligibility to work in the United mm-hmm. States. And so it's very important that employers have everybody sign and complete fully their I-9 form with the appropriate documentation, whether it's your know, passport, social security card, uh, birth certificate, and then maintain that documentation in a, in a specific way. To your point about, you know, the minefield of the um, overtime laws, people often get into problems with I-9, and it's possible that um, you can be subjected to an I-9 audit, and if you don't complete the form properly or maintain it properly, each error in how you've maintained or completed that form is, in, is a potential findable offense. So it's important to take care of the I-9 forms properly um, as part of the onboarding process. And, and what's involved in to, main, what's involved oh, in maintaining what's involved in maintaining the I-9? Uh, it's recommended that you keep all the I-9 forms separately in a binder. Don't put them in a personnel file. Of course, you should be keeping all of your personnel files and HR documents in some sort of locked or secure manner or on an encrypted server that's password protected or both. Mm-hmm. Um, and the I-9 forms you really should keep separately because should you be subject to an audit, uh, that way you have everything available. And also that way you can, you can uh, dispose of them in the appropriate time frame because, again, you, like with many HR documents, you want to maintain them for a period of time, but you also want to uh, shred and destroy them so that you're not keeping you know, years and years and years of former employee information that just becomes 
you know, uh, a management nightmare in and of itself. So you want to make sure that you're keeping your I-9s in a separate binder. And um, what's the length of time you need to keep those records for uh, employees that have departed? That <laughs> uh, I think it's three years after the last date of employment, but I could be wrong. I'm, that one I don't necessarily have committed to memory, but th- that's all in the, um, you know, available online. If you Google that, you'd come up with the right answer mm. okay. quickly, Super. more quickly than I can retrieve it uh, from my head. But uh, in terms of other onboarding documents, you'd want to give them copies of, uh, if you have more than, you know, the requisite number of employees in your state, the harassment policy, the manual, and you'd want them to sign an acknowledgement that they've received those uh, either key policies or the handbook um, and that they understand that, you know, they're receiving it, they're acknowledging it, um, and those are probably the key things that everybody should have, everybody put their John Hancock on. So it really sounds like if I'm an employer, um, I'm a small business, I have, I don't know, 10 employees or some number, even less than that. Um, I'm not going to be really an HR expert. I really need to get somebody who is going to be up to date and knowledgeable about all these requirements and help me keep everything in check. And that's more or less what, what you do for your clients, right? Right, because if you're under, you know, probably even 40 or 50 people, you may not have the need or resources to have a regular HR person. You may not even need a regular part-time person, but you, you know, you need them when you need them. <coughs> Excuse me. So you want to get your systems in place, as I mentioned earlier, get your policies, procedures, posters, um, checklists for new hires, checklists for departing employees. <coughs> Excuse me. Get those all. Um, in place, and then, excuse <coughs> me, as you have issues that come up, or as laws change, you know, you want to be able to keep compliant, stay compliant. You're not going to have the bandwidth as a business owner to, you know, learn the intricacies of the new Department of Labor regulations over time, but you're going to need to potentially do something about it or some other change like that. So you want mm-hmm. to have some resource was going to email you and say, hey, the um, the XYZ law has changed. You need to update your handbook. There's a new sick leave law in your state. You're going to have to change your handbook and your policies and your procedures. So it's important to have mm-hmm. some sort of resource that can keep you um, up to speed on these issues. Great. Uh, well, let's, let's take another quick break, and when we come back, let's talk a little bit more about Um, these checklists and, and how you might create them. So we'll be right back. If operating your small business has you stressed, impacts your health, chips away at your relationship, and eats up all of your free time, Simple Small Business Solutions can help you implement business systems that make running your business easier. Whether you're trying to make more sales, struggling to get your marketing done, or want better information to manage your business, we can help. Visit us at simplesmallbusinesssolutions.com. Does your business need to make more money? Do you need more customers? Are you afraid of the 800-pound telephone? If you answered yes, then you need Ann Barab. Ann helps clients discover the art of clear messaging to sell their products and services. Once you know what to say and how to say it, your confidence will grow into magnetism that draws customers to you and fills your pipeline through personal referral business. For a free 30-minute assessment, go to www.annbarab.com. That's A-N-N-E-B-A-R-A-B.com. And welcome back. We're here with Megan Taylor, HR consultant and attorney, and we're talking about all the gotchas around the HR function in your small business. So you recommend them having a checklist for the onboarding and the termination process. Is there any place that they can go to get a guideline for that or um, in their state just to make sure that they've got some sense of what they need to do and no step is forgotten? Um, uh, Probably. I mean, I think what would be helpful is for them to, through some resource, whether they're getting newsletters and updates, you know, find out what their 
requirements are about things like harassment and either, as I say, a written information security plan or things like that. Um, as I say, there are federal documents that you need to give, like the, the um, general notice for COBRA, um, the I-9, the other four. You can get all of that on the Department of Labor uh, website. They do have tools on the Department of Labor website that will help employers. So that's probably a good place to, to look. And then you want to add information about your own benefits plan. And you want to think about what are we doing in the workplace. For example, um, people should, if they give people mobile devices, whether they're cell phones or tablets, you probably should have a mobile device policy. But what happens when someone leaves? Are you going to retrieve that? Um, are you going to let them keep it? But are you going to wipe your company's data? So you need to think about what you have that's of value, really, um, mm. and make sure that you sort of create a checklist based on that. I have, I've seen clients who maybe they don't have a regular HR person, but an, you know, an occasional office manager or someone in the company is taking care of the departures, and you know, they've left people on the medical plan for months after someone has left or off the, on the life insurance plan. Of course, that costs the employer money. So right. it's important to spend some time and say, what do we really need to do when an employee leaves? Well, we need to terminate medical, dental, life, whatever our benefits are. And somebody needs, needs to be taking care of that and checking, yes, I've done that. I have terminated that. Yes, I have sent the COBRA notice uh, and those kinds of things. So I'm not sure that's you know, sort of a one-stop place to get the, the checklist that will be right for every employer, but you want to think about what are my obligations under the law, what are my benefits, and what are my policies about return of company uh, property, that kind mm. of thing, and sort of build that into your checklist. Yeah, and I, a, an issue that I've had to deal with is uh, passwords, getting the passwords, changing the right. passwords. Right. Yeah, all of those kinds of things. Sure, amazing. And you know what? That, what, what I'm sorry, uh, so what helps on that, and no, what go people ahead. don't often do, is a, setting up a written process. So if somebody is doing your medical enrollment, for example, if it's even the um, controller or your uh, finance person, what's the process for getting onto the Blue Cross Blue Shield or Harvard Pilgrim or whomever website? What are their logins? And then having that given to someone in charge who can then maintain that of those processes with all those passwords. So then if that person leaves suddenly or even is ill and is suddenly out of work for a period of time and no one knows what the login details are, I think it's a really important piece of sort of corporate governance to, to figure out who has access to those online portals or those passwords to computers and how we're going to keep those and maybe spend a day with everybody just writing down their processes and their passwords and having it kept in a central repository with, you know, someone in charge so that they can access that information if need be, whether it's on departure or if somebody, so, you know, on departure so they can be changed, but then also even if some were unavailable for a period of time so that the workflow can happen. Mm. And that brings to mind something that I saw on your website, which was uh, some, some service that you provide around company intranets. What are the um, gotchas or the issues there? Well, there's two things. There's um, intranet, which is some companies, because they maybe have a workforce that's in several states, they don't have a water cooler anymore to post those federal posters. I mean, the intranet can be a great tool for a company, uh, where they can now upload uh, the the various state workplace posters. So they can have, you know, Massachusetts workplace posters. They can have North Carolina workplace posters all in one place because they've got two people in North Carolina and three people in Massachusetts. They can also put all of their um, PDFs of all of their policies, handbooks, um, procedures up there, uh, as well as, key documents around medical benefits, summary plan descriptions. If you have a 401k, you can put up your 401k plan description. And that way people can access that information remotely and you don't have to worry about how am I going to display a poster to my outside salesperson that's three states away. So mm -hmm. the intranet is a great tool and uh, what it can, you know, they can be as simple as um, a shared 
folder on a shared drive to, you know, uh, a real intranet that has the look and feel of the company website and maybe has even the ability that if I update the handbook uh, and I say, excuse me, I say everybody, the new handbook is on the intranet. If I access that and read it, I get a read receipt that someone has read the new and improved handbook. But it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be that complicated for a small company. If everybody has access to a, a drive and you want to create a shared HR folder, you can put all of those posters, policies, procedures, summary plan descriptions in PDF form on a shared um, drive. And then you just remind people to use that. So if I come to my manager and say, what, what's our 401k plan like again? You can say, just check and go look at the shared HR folder on the H drive or whatever, and it simplifies what everybody needs to know and and how they're going to access that information. Yeah, and then if you have to make changes, you're making it once and you're sure that everybody has access to it for consistency again. Yeah, great. Right, and saving some trees in the process. Right, saving some trees. Um, Now, Megan, you're in a... I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say everyone wants to try to minimize the paper, it seems, these days. So this is a really good way to not have to distribute 30 copies of a 10-page handbook. You can just mm-hmm. update the change on the shared folder and then drive people there. Right, right. Now, you are an attorney, as we've mentioned, in addition to being an HR consultant. What are the benefits to your clients? I know there are some really nice benefits to clients who uh, work with someone like you who is both. Well, I think the value added that that brings to the table is the compliance piece um, so that I'm keeping up to speed on changes in state and federal law and what's best practices uh, and can potentially um, mitigate damages. Uh, One of the things I mentioned was uh, the harassment training. While it's not required by law, that can be used as a defense if the claim ends up in a lawsuit. So I can help remind people really not only what their obligations are, but how they can take steps to help mitigate um, liabilities that they may have in a certain area. So I think the compliance piece is important. And then actually having represented companies in the past uh, previously, I often see the exposures and the liabilities that people don't want to think about and can make recommendations. I always recommend that people get employment practices liability insurance to cover them for wrongful employment practices. Um, and that's, a, that's something that I think just from experience, having seen clients who have that kind of insurance coverage, how really what a relief it is when they know they have coverage for not only the resolution of the case, but defense costs along the way. Um, my experience in that area, I think, can be helpful to a client. Yeah, that is huge, especially for the small business owner. The defense costs alone could create a financial situation that wouldn't be very good if you had to defend yourself against something that maybe you didn't even do. Right. People don't realize, I mean, I think I'm not an insurance broker, but I have a number of clients who are very small who do have that kind of coverage and can afford it, and it does give them a significant peace of mind. Mm. Now, Megan, um, how can people get in touch with you? You do work in more than Massachusetts. So if someone wanted to reach out to you, where could they find you? Uh, they can reach me at mtaylor at hrgroup.com. Uh, I do have clients that have employees um, all over the United States. I mean, these days you don't have to be a large company to be global. And I have a number of clients who are European companies that maybe are larger over on that side of the pond and then have smaller organizations over here that are scattered from here to California. So um, it's not unusual now these days for even very small employees to have multi-state employees and have to deal with complicated HR issues in various states. Great. So just repeat that website for everybody one more time, would you? Uh, Yes, Uh, mtaylor at taylorhrgroup.com. Okay, that's your email address. Great. Right, and the right. website is taylorhrgroup.com, and there's some right. um, a, a list of your services out there. So if anybody has any questions about how you might assist them, they can get those questions answered out there, and they can uh, find a way to reach out and contact Megan. Right. 
Any final words of wisdom for our small business owner listeners? Uh, just I think it's important to not ignore some of these issues, and it really uh, can help so much if you deal with them in advance before they turn into something that is just uh, way more costly and involved. And the old ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, I think it's particularly apropos in the field of HR and employment issues. Excellent. Great advice. I want to thank you very much for being a guest on my show. This has been great information, and it's a topic I think many of us don't know enough about, and we are you know, in danger of not knowing even the right questions to ask. So this was very, very helpful, and thanks for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Nancy. I really enjoyed it. Great. And to all of the listeners, we'll be back again next week with another episode. So until then, um, keep growing those businesses and adding value to the marketplace. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.